We continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we find ourselves in chapter 9, verses 51 through 62, and we will finish out chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke this morning. The title of our sermon is To Jerusalem. And our key words for our worshipers in training are follow Jerusalem and kingdom. Now, believe it or not, I used to be, I've come to my life, point in my life where I have to say I used to be, a marathon runner and a long course triathlete. Now, I very much miss that. I miss the training and I miss the competition. I have very fond memories of all of the events that I took part in. But because the races I did were all about endurance, there were months of training involved. There's long hours, sore muscles, a strict diet, a lot of time alone, enduring all sorts of different weather. And I remember every now and then I'd be out far from where I had to return to. The only way to get back is to run. And I'd get discouraged. And I'd think, really, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Professional endurance runners and Ironman triathletes always talk about the most difficult part of their sport. It's not the physical aspect once you're in shape, but it's the mental. So endurance athletes train themselves in their thinking. For me, I would continuously remind myself of the end, the finish line, the prize that I was training for. And more than once in my racing days, I would cross the finish line with tears in my eyes, not because I finished the race, but because I had run through the finish line with all of these hours, all of this effort and all of these things leading up to it to get to that one single moment. It wasn't 26.2 miles of running. It was hundreds of miles of running. It wasn't 70.3 miles of a triathlon. It was thousands of miles of swimming and biking and running, preparing It was realizing at that moment that the goal at the end that was always in my sights, the line that I always reminded myself I was going to cross and made all the hours and all of the miles worth my time and effort and that it was here. I made it. We've all had experiences like that. Consider your education You study hard, you do projects, you complete assignments, you pass tests. You're reading and studying and staying up late and getting up early and there's hours and hours of painful, rigorous effort. But then you graduate and you you move on and all of those efforts, Lord willing, bring you to the opportunity to work and provide for your family. You can think of it in terms of all sorts of things, projects at work, practicing a, a musical instrument and on and on. Here's the thing, in all of these things, there's a prize at the end that we're moving toward. There's a specific end that everything we've done is leading up to. That thing that all of that is all about. Now, all of them certainly have residual effects. There are a lot of other things that happen along the way on the journey. Getting there is 
important, but it's the end that's most important. It's the end that we're shooting for. And where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke this morning, we arrive at one of the most significant turning points in the life and ministry of Jesus. Everything we've seen up until now and everything that has happened, not just in the Gospel, but all through the Old Testament law and all through the prophets, all that we have seen has been leading up to the most significant event in the history of the world. And here in Luke's gospel account, we arrive at the point in which Jesus becomes all the more intentional to push toward his earthly finish line. He's been performing miracles and healing and teaching and training, and he's going to continue to do so in the chapters ahead. But Luke brings us to this point in the life and ministry of Jesus and shows us what Jesus ultimately had his eyes set on. What is the ultimate goal? So let's read, beginning in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now Jesus was setting himself to endure that which was inevitably before him. That which was determined in eternity past between the members of the Godhead and the great covenant of redemption at the t- and that time had arrived. From here on in the Gospel of Luke, through the next ten chapters, Jesus is geographically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually moving toward the very thing in which he came to earth to do. All of the law, all of the prophets, all of the wisdom, all of his miracles, all of his preaching, everything was pointing to this moment that was to come. And now here is Jesus resolutely setting himself toward Jerusalem, moving toward that which would ultimately bring salvation to the world. What was in Jerusalem, of course, was the cross he would endure on behalf of his people that we might live. And it is this moment that Jerusalem is looming large in the thoughts of Jesus. So for those of you who are interested in literary structure, there's a shape to the story, right? Think of the Gospel of Luke. So far we've had this rising action moving toward the climax. And at the climax we've seen the Apostles' proclamation that Jesus is the Christ. And then we see Jesus announcing His death to come and the transfiguration. And so here now we have the climax. Jesus sets His face to Jerusalem. You could almost... See the disciples asking, which way now, Jesus? And he turns and he faces to the cross. And so literally from here forward, we're in the falling action. We're on the way to the inevitable end of which all the hope and promises of old were predicated upon and moving toward. From here on, we're going to see that even more so than in the past The Gospel of Luke is not particularly chronological. 
We're going to see a lot more in terms of lessons of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. From here on, the particular concern of Christ will be with training his disciples. Now, along the way, he's going to continue to confront the Pharisees and and false teachers, but primarily he is concerned with preparations for the cross and preparations of his disciples that they would be equipped to do what they needed to do in the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ. So here we have Jesus. He's determined to go to Jerusalem against all obstacles. He would not be denied going to Jerusalem. We see a steady, steadfast determination to fulfill the very thing he has now told the disciples twice in the Gospel of Luke. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. I want you to see something else very important that Luke is revealing for us here. You see, Jesus is not just set on the cross. But what does Luke write here in verse 51? When the days drew near for him to be taken up. Wow. We see that very same language used by Luke in his writing of the book of Acts. And what is he talking about in those contexts? Three different times. Every time he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So you see, Jesus wasn't just moving toward the cross. As great and as glorious and as important as the cross is, Jesus had to die for our salvation. But if Jesus simply died and never raised from the dead, we're without hope. We're without assurance. We ourselves are without resurrection. And so Jesus is moving toward that day when he would be taken up, resurrected. Amen. Now to set his face toward Jerusalem meant something very different for Jesus than it did for the disciples. Remember, they were having all of these visions of greatness that danced in their heads. We saw that last time in verse 46. Remember, an argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. So in their minds, Jerusalem? Yes, let's go to Jerusalem. That's where it's going to get better. Jerusalem meant that glory was just around the corner for them. Oh, what it would mean for them, Jesus' right-hand men, for him to be on the throne. Ah, But Jesus had a very different vision in his head. Here in verse 51, we see that Jesus is the great exemplar of our faith. Setting his face, as the writer of Hebrews says, to the joy that was set before him. He would be obedient. And Jesus' obedience was obedience unto death. Even death on a cross. And I want to say something to those of you here this morning who are not Christians. Do you see the willingness of Jesus... Do you see his readiness? 
Do you see his earnestness to suffer on behalf of sinners like you and I? And do you not think that he who is ready to suffer and die and he who would be resurrected from the dead is also ready to save the one who comes to him and says, Lord, save me from my sins. Oh, how Jesus is the sinner's friend. He came to save sinners. And friend, the only thing that keeps you from Christ is your hardened heart. Repent. And turn to Jesus. He is a friend closer than any brother. Read on verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And here we see even further evidence of the fact that Jesus is for sinners. You see, Samaria is a place that the average Jew would simply bypass. They lengthen their journeys to get around the land of the Samaritans. There was a mutual hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it went back for centuries when the Samaritans inter, they intermarried with their Assyrian conquerors. And so the Jews considered them to be a racial half-breed and a religious apostates. And so in response, the Samaritans said that the Jews were apostates and they set up a rival temple that was later destroyed by the Jews. And they published their own edition of the Pentateuch. They established a rival liturgy. And so the Jews would respond by cursing them publicly. They would meet in the synagogues and pray daily that they would not enter eternal life. Oh, the hatred. During the times of the New Testament, the Samaritans actually snuck into the temple of Jerusalem and took human bones and scattered them about the, about the temple. Oh, they hated each other. So you can understand why they did what they could to stay away from one another. But not Jesus. No, Jesus is the friend of sinners. And Jesus brings the good news of the kingdom of God to all the nations. So Jesus sends ahead an advance party to make preparations. Do you see how intentional that was? Remember, he's training his disciples. He sends ethnically Jewish disciples into Samaria to make preparations for him to come, knowing full well what was about to happen. He's preparing, he's training, he's cultivating the disciples. They were on the cusp of being called to bring the gospel to all the nations. It didn't matter who it was. And they're about to start in their own backyard. Or so they thought. So Jesus goes into Samaria to do all that he has already been doing, to speak mercy. 
And I don't think that this text means that the Samaritans didn't receive him, as in they didn't welcome him or they didn't have a lodging for him or something like that. I think what Luke is saying here is that Jesus, that what Jesus said was not received. The thing that Jesus had been saying all along, that these people rejected it. They did not receive what Jesus had to say. He was on his way to the cross. He was already carrying that cross on the road to Calvary. And so he would have spoken mercy to the Samaritans and they did not receive him. Do you see what a tragedy that is? Jesus' purpose to offer mercy to a people who have been hated and dejected and rejected and they rejected him. It's tragic. So how do the disciples respond? Well, We know enough about the disciples to know that it was not the right way. Look in verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And then they went on to another village. Now, in one sense, we need to admit that their response was accurate and understandable. Here's what I mean by that. The apostles understood at least the significance of resisting and rejecting Jesus. They saw the catastrophe of rejecting Jesus. It's tragic, and we can't state it strong enough. Our lives are in the balance every time we hear from Jesus. What do you hear? What do you think? What do we believe? It's a tragedy to reject Jesus. It's a tragedy of all tragedies to reject Jesus. The greatest tragedy in life is not to die. It's to die without Jesus. There's only two ways to die, in your sin or asleep with Jesus, that you will rise again. Why would you want to die without peace, without hope, without all the assurance that awaits you? So you can live a few more days indulging the flesh, the sinful desires of this world? What a shame. What a tragedy. You see, it wasn't just the Samaritans who rejected Jesus. Many of the Jews, all of the Samaritans, and people today, some of you. Jesus offers mercy, but all of the world responds and says, Nah. This shouldn't surprise us, should it? It shouldn't surprise us when we offer life and it's rejected, should it? That's the story of many of our lives for a long time, wasn't it? They rejected Jesus himself. Why would they not reject us, his disciples? The human heart loves sin and will hold on to sin. It doesn't matter that the bridge is out ahead. I don't care. I like driving down this road. I'll worry about it when I get there. Do you really want to wait to worry about the bridge being out when you get there? Friend, at that point, it is way too late. 
But that's the heart of man. A worldly man is happy to go for it anyway, no matter one's ethnic group, no matter his education, economic status, anything. You will reject Jesus Christ unless he has mercy upon you and calls you unto himself through the preaching of the word of God, to which he adds his spirit. Salvation is by grace alone, and it happens. Jesus does it despite our rejection. What happens with the Samaritans eventually? These people we read about here, those people who are rejecting Jesus, what happens with them? Acts chapter 8, Philip goes and preaches to Samaria. He brings the gospel and great revival breaks out. What's the difference? Well, I assure you it wasn't them. It was the grace and mercy of God. If you're not a Christian, I urge you to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinful, wretched man. I'm a sinful, wretched woman. I do not want this tragedy to fall upon my head. And he will have mercy. Yes, he will have mercy. Now we see in Jesus' response to James and John, we see that he wants his disciple to have his mindset. And here's a question for us to consider. How do we look at and respond to the enemies of Christ? What is to be our attitude? What was the disciples' attitude? Let's take them out. Let's turn them into something that they're going to sell at Bojangles down the road. They wanted judgment and they wanted it now. Let's send fire from heaven and burn them up. But whose business is that? Jesus responds and reminds them, My disciples will be people of grace and mercy. Remember Luke chapter 6? Pray for your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Why? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not ours. It's not our responsibility to dole out vengeance for sin. It belongs to the Lord. And it won't happen overnight most times. It may not even happen in our lifetime. But I assure you, vengeance will come. If you're in Christ, vengeance has come. It has fallen upon Jesus Christ. But you see, loving our enemies is not negating the seriousness of rejecting Jesus. The disciples got that right, but they didn't understand how to respond. We see how often the Lord has been patient with his disciples. How often has the Lord been patient with you, with me? It is so often that God shows us something in his word and it just goes right over our heads. We ignore it. But by patience, he shows us again. He may show us in a different way, with different words, and again and again and again, and then we get it. This is the attitude of true disciples. 
As a side note, I want to note the importance of the timing of Jesus' rebuke here. The disciples are about to see Jesus being rejected many, many more times. And his circle of disciples, you will see, doesn't grow. It's about to shrink. Jesus doesn't have the greatest church growth strategy. They fall away by the dozens. But what does Jesus do? He continues on the road to Jerusalem. And what happens along the way? Let's read verse 57 through the end of the chapter. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now the Christian life is difficult. The Christian life is absolute. It's not part of your life. Jesus will have all of you or none of you. Those are the options. And he is absolutely honest about it. Remember verse 23 of chapter 9? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. You want to be a Christian? Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? Then your life becomes mine. And it's a life of trial and hardship and pain and adversity and persecution and scorn and betrayal. And great, everlasting, abiding joy. That's life with Jesus. This is the cost of discipleship. And to show the cost, Jesus is going to say some very tough things to these people here. And we have a very hard time with Jesus' response here, probably at first because of what is being asked by these would-be disciples. Now, at first reading, everything they're asking seems to be quite reasonable, doesn't it? And yet Jesus responds very differently than we expect of him. But of course, Jesus is discerning something in these individuals that he is going to address. Here is the overarching theme of what he says to all three of them. If you're going to follow me, it means everything. All of your life, all that you do, all that you are becomes mine. To be a Christian means that Jesus is our all in all. He's not a peripheral matter on Sundays, but the rest of the week is for me. One of the brothers at our Rhymes and Reformation conference over the weekend said, saints on Sunday ain't the other six days. (laughs) That's not the Christian. 
No, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and it's all about him. That's the dominant message here in these statements. It's all about priority and the call of God on one's life. It's complete. It's all or nothing. So Jesus gives three warnings here, and these are for all disciples of Jesus Christ, for you and for me. His first warning is this. It won't be easy. This first man comes to Jesus and is saying, I want to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. Well, isn't that what we want to hear from people? That's what I want to hear from my children. That's what I want to hear from you. Man, that's what every pastor should want to hear from people. I want to follow Jesus wherever he leads me. But Jesus doesn't respond how I would. He says, you better hold on. It's going to be tough. If you're a Christian, you have to confront your life, your idols of pleasure and comfort and ease. There is no Jesus plus anything else. If you're following Jesus, you will be conformed into his image and be like him. And Jesus reminds this man of his own homelessness. He was on a mission. He was on the go. He was never comfortable. And he's asking this man, essentially, is that what you're in for? Obeying Jesus above all other options? Is that what you want? Do you really think about what you're saying when we sing the words, Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come, disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. Or how about these words? <clears throat> Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. In other words, in those songs we sing, we're reiterating the very thing that Jesus is saying here. It doesn't matter in the least what the world will bring our way. I will follow Jesus Take it all. Have it all. It's all yours so long as you have Jesus. He is enough. No matter how bumpy the road may get, Jesus is enough. And you know, in a very real sense, we, like him, are homeless on this earth. So often the Bible describes us in that way as pilgrims, as wanderers, as, as vagabonds, as aliens in this world. And there's nothing easy about that. Don't get comfortable, he says. This is Jesus' first warning to the disciples. You want to follow me? It's not going to be easy. He offers a second warning. As a man comes to him and says, let me first go and bury my father. And his warning is this, there is a great urgency. Now is Jesus 
counseling this man to disobey the fifth commandment and dishonor his father? Well, obviously not. Jesus would never give such counsel to call someone to transgress the law of God. So what is it in in this man's words that Jesus is confronting? Look again how the man says it. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. In other words, this is my first thing in life. Not following Jesus, but tending to my father. In other words, he's not considering the first greatest commandment to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength over and above the second to love your neighbor as yourself. You must honor Christ above all. Christ is the greatest priority. Consider, consider if you become a Christian in Afghanistan or Iran or Pakistan or Nigeria, you may not be burying your father, he may be burying you because your priority is Jesus. And when everyone you know and love is in a false religion in a place like that, they may very well want you dead for uttering the name of Christ. But he is of first importance. But notice the man did not say his father was dead, but only let me go and bury my father. If his father had indeed died, the man would not be on the road with Jesus, but at home tending to the details and the service. So apparently this would-be disciple's father was probably getting elderly, and the man was asking Jesus' permission. Can I just delay following you until after my father's death? I want to take care of that first, and then, then I'll follow you. How often have we heard that? Repent, believe the gospel. I will, I will. But first, I have a few other things I want to do, a few other things I want to tend to. I'll follow Jesus when I determine the time is right. You see, the request revealed that this man had no concept of the urgency and the importance of that which Jesus was calling him to. And Jesus' famous answer is far from being hard-hearted or harsh, but it exalted the importance of the call. He's saying, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. The, The implication is that a man alive to God, with the call of God on his life, he must do greater things to proclaim the kingdom of God. And to neglect this would ultimately mean being false to his father's deepest need. You see, he wants to go and bury his father, but what does his father need? He needs Christ. If you're really on the road with Jesus, life is filled with an intense urgency. We have the words of life. Life is short. There's so little time. We have such good news to proclaim far and wide by whatever means we are able with the gifts that we are given. There's an urgency to the Christian life. And Jesus reminds this man by rebuking him and warning him. Third and lastly, Jesus offers one more warning. And that is that there can be no looking back. 
Again, it seems a very minor thing here, doesn't it? But the heart of the issue and what is being asked is in the statement made to Jesus. Let me first say farewell. What was of first importance? Now, this request itself has biblical precedence in the life of Elijah. When Elijah saw Elisha plowing behind the oxen, he approached him and he throws a a cloak over him, indicating his call to discipleship. And Elisha accepted, but he begged Elijah that he could go and kiss his father and mother goodbye first, saying, and then I will come with you. And Elijah permitted him to come. And to do that. So obviously Jesus was very aware of this Old Testament account. This is where his plowing imagery comes in right here. But Jesus doesn't respond like Elijah, does he? There would be a time later for goodbyes. But a disciple must not condition his commitment to even the most proper of obligations. The call must come first and remain the focus of one's life. In the great ancient literary work of Hesiod, it's called Work and Days. There's a proverb that talks about how one cannot look back while plowing and driving a straight furrow at the same time. You can't drive oxen through the field and look behind you if you want to keep a straight row. Those who pine after what they left behind, who are always remembering the comforts of home, how things used to be, who dream about what life might have been if they had not stepped onto the road with Jesus, who keep looking in the rearview mirror, they will not do well on Jesus' road. Remember Lot's wife? God gives her the opportunity to get away from the most wicked of all places, to flee with freedom from Sodom and Gomorrah, what does she do? She turns. She looks back to her own destruction as she becomes a pillar of salt. Remember the Jews continued in the wilderness year after year after year with grumbling and complaining. God is dropping food from the heavens that they could eat every day, bringing forth water from rocks, protecting them supernaturally around every corner. And they complain. And what do they do? They turn back and say, oh, Egypt. Egypt. We were making bricks without straw. Our children were being gashed against the rocks. We were slaves of the worst kind, but Egypt. You see, there can be no looking back. It's a great story of a man named William Borden. He was the heir of a wealthy Chicago family. In 1904, at the age of 18, he traveled around the world This was followed by his education at Yale and then Princeton Seminary where he committed his life to seek to win the Muslims in China to Christ. And before he left, Borden gave away some $500,000 and served at the age of 23 as a trustee to the Moody Bible Institute. And then in 1913, 26 years old, 
He left for Egypt and he never looked back. It was the final year of his life because when he got to Cairo, he contracted cerebral meningitis. And he laid dying. He was parched. He couldn't speak. And someone gave him a piece of paper and a pen. And he scribbled out a note. And it said, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. That's the kind of attitude that Jesus is calling for in Luke 9. And very clearly, none of us measure up, do we? We have an unwillingness to suffer discomfort. We lack urgency. And we're often looking back to the world, often turning our eyes back to Egypt, back to Sodom. But as Jesus continues to form us and mold us and shape us and make us to be greater disciples of his, we're learning and he is patient by his grace. And it's a beautiful truth that we can look at. We can look at our own lives as the disciples of Jesus and see how far short we fall and yet in the same breath and in the same thought say, but Jesus loves me. Jesus is for me. And Jesus will get me there. If you're not a Christian this morning, I hope you hear me telling you that it is a great tragedy to reject Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Today is a day of great mercy. Plead with Christ. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Nobody knows what tomorrow will bring. You are a great sinner and deserve the greatest of God's wrath, just like me. But Jesus is a far greater Savior than you are a sinner. And he can and he is willing to set you free. Are you a Christian? Will you persist in loving? Now, there are many reasons why we fail to love others. Perhaps most often it's revenge. We immediately want to think what others have done to us and justify not loving them. But Jesus doesn't give us a way out. I have loved you unto death and I have called you and I want you to love your enemies unto death. They ought to go to their graves over you pleading for God to have mercy on them. This is our attitude towards sinners. Jesus rebuked the disciples for a callous regard for enemies of the gospel. Will we persist in in the Lord Jesus Christ to love others unto death? That's the question for us today. And as Jesus' disciples, do we embrace the difficulty of the journey, the urgency of the task? Are we turning back to look at Sodom and Gomorrah on our way to freedom? Don't be like Lot's wife. Are we turning back and longing for our days of slavery to sin and death like the Jews of Egypt? Don't be like them. We don't want the yoke of bondage and sin and death when we've been set free. Yes, we have a long, steady, slow, difficult walk, and it's all in the same direction, and the scenery doesn't change much. It's a dusty, difficult path, 
But brothers and sisters, it's far more worth it than you and I could ever imagine. Drive on in faith, trusting that Jesus is enough and the full riches of the kingdom of God await at the end of the trail. The call on the life of Jesus' disciples is to steady on, keep on, trusting, loving, depending on Jesus and all of his great provision because all that awaits us is greater than anything you could think or imagine for eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have called your people onto yourself, made us to be your disciples, and so now we desire, O oh God, to be obedient, to keep on pushing forward in our Christian lives, bringing glory to you, obeying your commandments, loving our enemies unto death. Striving to be a people who make much of Jesus every minute of every day of our lives. We recognize, O oh God, that in you it is all or nothing. May it be that all of us can say with a clear conscience that we surrender all and all to you we owe. Because Jesus has set us free. Help us, O oh God, to keep our eyes moving forward, never looking back to the yoke of bondage to sin and slavery to the devil. God, for those who are outside of Christ this morning, would you raise them from the dead? Would you give them new life? with eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand, that they would see and know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And all that this world has to offer is nothing, is nothing in comparison to the great worth of knowing and loving and worshiping Jesus forever and ever. May you put it in their hearts to call out to you for mercy for forgiveness, for grace, for life everlasting in Jesus Christ. God, do that for your glory. We love you. We're so thankful for your word. And we pray that through your word you would do a great work and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.